0: The Drabblecast, episode 177. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. All right, folks, week three of HP Lovecraft Month here on the Drabblecast original mythos related stories by today's hottest authors, commissioned and brought into existence by your very favorite weekly podcast. The Minnesota Northern Pike Game Fishing Podcast. There's no better place to talk about pike on the internet. This week, Floaters by David D. Levine. But first, a 100-word story to wet the whistle. A Drabble, of course, is a story that is exactly 100 words, no more, no less, and it's the name of the game on this year's podcast, where we like everything short and packed with lots of punch. This week's Drabble comes to us from Richard Cassidy, and it's called Research Project 12B. Richard's 19 years old and just finished his first year as a medical student at Edinburgh University with a 91%, an A average. Nerd. Now, I'm not normally a glass-half-empty kind of guy, but 91%? At this rate, he'll be killing just under 10% of his patients. And he gets an A for that? What is this, Montessori Medical School? Does A stand for, uh, adequately applied himself? Acknowledges potential for improvement. 91%. Why don't you try and narrow down that death margin a little bit, buddy? Oh, and hey, if you're a nerd and/or an artist out there, Rich is looking to hire. He's looking for artists to draw small sci-fi-themed two-dimensional isometric models from eight different angles for an online strategy game he's involved in producing called Gamamede. It's a paying gig, folks. Check out the link in our show notes to hop on that mess. Tell him Uncle Norm sent you. A great man once said that sacrifices are inevitable if science is to progress. As such, morals had no place in his experiments. He left emotions to his so-called peers. He continued to work diligently. Subject 39. On exposure to intense heat and light, rate of movement increases substantially. Moves away from stimulus rapidly. Death occurs after 2.36 seconds of continuous exposure. Jimmy? Her voice shattered his concentration, always interrupting. Didn't she understand how important his work was? Time to stop playing with the ants now. Lunch is ready. Yes. He replied, dropping the magnifying glass, exasperated. Cosmic horror. The idea that obscenely gigantic space creatures that live for thousands of millennia with powers beyond our imagining are out there. Perhaps even watching us, or perhaps completely unconcerned. Either way, the idea behind the horror is that occasionally some of us might catch glimpses of them. The big eye in the sky with the magnifying glass. And it rocks all of our paradigms, revealing just how totally insignificant and small we ants really are. Lovecraft was a big player in this early game, saying, and I'll quote his 1929 paper again, To evoke such dread, the writer must conjure unknown spheres and entities on the universe's utmost rim. This, folks, is the crest and the crescendo of all good cosmic horror. The way to do this, according to old Hewlett Packard and his contemporaries, is to wrap up and sell the cosmic horror in an ordinary, familiar package. It's called verisimilitude, one of my favorite I-know-more-than-you words, and it means that which is actively made real and mostly ordinary. One way they did this back in the fiction of the 20s was to make use of archaic diary and journal entries. Because of course, only a handful of people were using CompuServe back then, and boy did their blogs suck. So there's this Coke machine at work, and it's always out of Grape Fanta, which pisses me off because I love Grape Fanta, but here's the thing, the button doesn't blink. So the Coke delivery people don't know to replace it, which sucks because it means I can't ever have Grape Fanta unless I bring it myself. And seriously, who wants to do that when there's a machine that sells it like right in front of your face? Dracula scared the hell out of people in 1897 because A, he was an undead bloodsucker, and B, cause he was a dead burn foreigner sneaking onto our land and banging all our obedient white women. Sure, Dagon's scary, but what really kept Lovecraft up at night was all them dead gum immigrants coming into the U.S. America and tainting the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant bloodlines.
1: So the Arizona legislature is about
0: to pass the toughest law against illegal immigrants in the country illegal aliens the legislation will make it a state crime to be in the u.s. illegally cuz they're coming here and they're being brown and they're speaking spanish and working hard without proper documents immigrants can be jailed fined or deported you know i hate when i call on the telephone and i have to push one for english but critics say it looks
1: like racial profiling i'm an american
2: I have a lot of fear that I will encounter the police. I shouldn't <laughs> have to push one. I just try to avoid them.
1: It's a crime. You Freedom can't. ain't free. Freedom, That's what me. that bumper sticker said. Over I that. was.
0: Bo- no wonder so many people are writing in the mythos today. So, in other words, you have to drench those unknown, chokingly horrible cosmic entities and spheres of unimaginable horror into some relevant, totally imaginable, chokingly shallow hook. Something that people fear, but can also wrap their heads around. Like, oh, I don't know, the Kardashians. Trembling in awe-struck repose, I gazed upward at the unspeakable. Bloated and monolithic, they bobbed up and down, two primordial spheres of vast, cyclopean circumference, hideously bulbous and colossal, with a dark, globular foulness and an immense, eldritch jiggling that I could neither watch nor avert my eyes from. Beneath the pale gibbous moon, I saw those bulging ellipsoid shapes lurch recklessly in a primal, sickening rhythm, as if bouncing repeatedly upon Hell's own trampoline, guided by Hell's own gravity, wearing Hell's own low-cut blouse. Up, and then down, up, and then down, oh, those prodigious, maddening orbs, those titties of night shadow, those slippery, swollen Shoggoths from outside of space and time, I curse thee as I scream into the ether. Oh God, those boobies! The window! The window! You get the point. Times may change, but the unfathomable stays unfathomed, glimpsed only on occasion perhaps by a set of unfortunate eyes. And that leads us to this week's story, Floaters by David D. Levine. David won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story in 2006 for his story Tick, 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 and won last year's Drabblecast People's Choice Award for his story Babble Probe, episode 109, which earned him the sacred Drabblecast Chalice of Glory. Check out pictures of that in our discussion forums. You'll find a link in our show notes. David lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife Kate Yule, and together they produce the fanzine Bento at bentopress.com. There you can find more info on David and the stuff that he's written. His most recent sci-fi adventure was in January, when he spent two weeks in a simulated Mars base in the Utah desert. Hey, Utah where the party is. Check out his book about the experience, called The Mars Diaries, at bentopress.com forward slash mars. Oh, and also, stick around again after this week's story for another author's note. Listen to David himself give some insight about the story Floaters, what inspired it, etc. Pretty cool. All right, folks, without further ado, we bring you... Floaters by David D. Levine. It started on a sunny spring day. One of those days rare in the Pacific Northwest when there isn't a cloud in the sky, a beautiful pale cerulean blue from horizon to horizon, with not even a contrail to mar its purity. It might have been the first time in six months I'd stepped off my porch without a hat, coat, or umbrella. I grinned and raised my face to the sun. That's when I saw it. A thing. No, not even a thing. Just an impression of a thing. A momentary imperfection in that seamless blue that teased at the edge of my vision. My eye flicked toward it, but it either whipped away faster than the eye could follow, or it hadn't really been there to begin with. The day was sunny, but it was perhaps not as warm as I'd thought when I first went out. I buried my hands in my pockets and headed off to work. I'm a barista. Yes, it's a cliché. Talented young painter, art school, MFA, would you like fries with that? But coffee cantata is a great day job. I get all the coffee and day-old pastries I want. I meet all kinds of interesting folks from the neighborhood, and people sometimes even buy one of my paintings off the walls. And though the pay's not great and the benefit's non-existent, it leaves me plenty of time off for my true calling. I do my best work in afternoon light. The bell on the door jingled as I came in to start work. George, the owner, nodded to me as he handed Kelly her change. She greeted me with a big, enthusiastic, ''Hi, Mason!'' Kelly was one of our regulars, a lanky ex-Texan with freckles, a pierced nose, and spiky hair that was blaze orange that week. She worked as a receptionist at the eye doctor down the street. Her usual was a 20-ounce chai with a grind of nutmeg on top, and she always left a whole dollar in the tip jar. Hey, Kelly. I hung my jacket behind the counter, pulled out a carrot cake from the refrigerator, and began cutting it up for the morning rush. Kelly brought her chai over to the counter and leaned on her elbows. Why so glum, chum? Usually we bantered about the news or the latest music over her chai and my work, but today I just wasn't in the mood. I don't know. I washed icing off my knife. I saw something this morning. Something that bugged me. Like what? I shrugged, like not much of anything, out of the corner of my eye, probably nothing. I shook my head to clear it. It just, it put me off my feet. Now what kind of nothing could do that? Her question made me stop and think. It was transparent squirmy i shuddered at the memory it was creepy ew was it like in the bushes it wasn't really anywhere i saw it against the blue sky i blinked maybe it was just in my eye you should come in and have dr rash look at it i grimaced and began setting the plates in the pastry case just thinking about doctors makes my wallet ache kelly put a hand on my elbow it might be serious Nah, I'm sure it's nothing. Just then the bell jingled, three chattering high school kids came in, and George looked at me and cleared his throat meaningfully. I leaned close to Kelly. Thanks for your concern, but I gotta get to work. On my way home, I kept looking up at the sky. A few scraps of cloud had invaded since the morning, but it was still mostly pure clear blue, and against that background, I saw... A drifting, transparent shape. It was hard to see clearly. I thought maybe it looked a little like those clear, wiry noodles you get in Japanese cooking, but whenever I looked directly at it, it seemed to dart away. Maybe there was more than one. Whatever they were, the things made me feel weird and self-conscious, like I was being watched. I kept shifting my eyes around as though I could catch one by surprise. Block by block, I got more and more creeped out. How long had they been there? I could only see them against the pure bright blue of the sky. If one sneaked into the corner of my eye when I was looking at a tree or a bush or traffic, I'd never even notice it. I shuddered and hurried my step. As soon as I got home, I went online. It didn't take very long to find out that what I was seeing was probably floaters. A common, harmless condition, nothing more than tiny bits of protein floating in the vitreous humor of the eye. There were some warnings that if I saw bright flashes or a sudden swarm of dark spots I should see a doctor right away, but apart from that, it seems I didn't need to worry. I fixed myself a cup of tea and put a fresh canvas on the easel. Maybe if I'd started a new project I'd be able to forget about the things that writhed in the corners of my eyes. But as soon as I snapped on the light, I saw another one, plainly visible against the creamy illuminated canvas, a twisting, drifting thread that floated and twined just below the center of my vision. When I looked down toward it, it jerked away, but as soon as my eye stopped moving, it stopped too, mocking me just out of clear sight. Just a floater, I told myself, and tried to ignore it as I prepped the canvas and squeezed out globs of paint onto my palette. The weight of the palette in my hand and the smells of linseed oil and turpentine began to get me into the painting mood, but as soon as I dipped my brush into the daub of red okra and lifted it to the blank canvas, there was the floater again, seeming to nose and nibble at the brush like an inquisitive goldfish. I forced my attention to the canvas. I was working on a series called Rotting Cathedrals, small abstracts that combined crumbling architectural elements and decaying biological forms in a commentary on the corruption of the church. But no matter where my brush went, my eye followed it, and there were the floaters. Two or three of them now, weaving and dodging around the brush strokes, flicking away when I tried to look at them. At one point they got so annoying that I actually tried to wave them away, as though they were flies. I succeeded in doing no more than flicking stray drops of dark green across the upper part of the canvas. I cursed and slapped the brush and palette down, grimacing and squeezing my eyes tight shut, but as soon as I opened them again, there were the floaters, right where I'd left them. I realized that they had been there even when my eyes were closed. I just hadn't been able to see them. Probably, they'd always been there. I'd never be rid of them. I shuddered. Suddenly, I had no more desire to paint today. My concentration completely disrupted. I stared fixedly at the center of my canvas, struggling to keep my attention on the floaters without moving my eyes. Disturbingly, they didn't seem to be drifting randomly. Instead, they seemed to follow the brushstrokes in my painting, sliding sensuously along the lines, like an uninvited lingering touch. Go away, my voice echoed in the empty room. They seemed to startle for a moment, then resumed their disturbing, sinuous motion. I felt molested, my art polluted by this unwanted attention. Go away, I shouted and clenched my eyes shut, pressing the knuckles of my fists against the closed lids until bright blue-black patches of color appeared. I opened my eyes, no change. Still, the floaters probed and pawed at my half-finished artwork. With a growl, I slapped the canvas from the easel, sending it crashing to the floor. Wet paint smeared on the leg of my pants, my shoe, the table beside me. Leaving the ruined canvas face down on the floor, I stormed out of the house. Breathing hard, I charged down the block. I had no destination, no goal, but too much unfocused anger to stay still. I kept my head down. On every step, the toe of my right shoe flashed blue and green wet paint from my destroyed canvas, mocking me, mocking my helplessness. Finally, I stopped and looked up into the clear blue sky. Floaters crowded my vision. What do you want? I cried to the heavens. For a moment, they seemed to pause. Then, they scattered like cockroaches. Dr. Rajagopalan was a kindly older fellow, rail thin with a narrow salt and pepper mustache, and his hands smelled of disinfectant and cumin as he gently fitted my face into a metal frame. He then proceeded to torture me with an intense white light that seared right through to the back of my head. The floaters flittered in its beam like night-flying moths. It's nothing to be very much concerned about, he said in his crisp subcontinental accent after the ordeal was concluded. Many people develop these floaters as they grow older. I'm only 23. He waggled his head from side to side. Nonetheless, they are quite harmless. He wrote a few notes on a paper and placed it in a folder with my name on it. I see no signs of retinal detachment, macular edema, or hyalosis. Could they be parasites? I saw this one episode of House. He shook his head firmly. You should simply ignore them. I'll try. But I couldn't fail to see the floaters nibbling at the corners of his eyebrows and mustache. Ellie, the the receptionist gave me a pair of cheap plastic sunglasses to protect my dilated eyes and a bill that meant I wouldn't be buying paint or canvas for two or three months. Sorry, she said in response to my grimace. We can set up a payment plan. I'll be okay. I dropped a dollar in the jar on the counter. <sighs> That's not for tips. She fished the dollar out and handed it back to me. <laughs> it's a candy dish, but we're out. Want a lollipop? Were you good for Dr. Raj? I smiled, but declined her offer. As soon as I got outside, I looked up. Against the pristine blue, floaters scurried like rats. Plague-infested, flea-ridden rats. I did try to ignore them. Whenever I went outside, I kept my eyes down. I worked only on paintings I'd already started, avoiding fresh canvases. I tried to limit my intake of sugar and switched from coffee to calming Tizans. It didn't help. Every printed page and computer screen held blank white areas where the floaters appeared, and even when I couldn't see them, I knew they were there, watching, staring, spying on me. They seemed to congregate around points of interest in my vision. My own painting seemed especially fascinating to them. Whenever my brushes and paints came out, they swarmed around my brush as it lay down lines and strokes. At work, I noticed customers looking over their shoulders as I placed their orders, following my own distracted gaze, and my tips dwindled to almost nothing. And in the shower, They crawled along my naked anatomy in a way that made me shudder with disgust. The fact that I couldn't feel their touch almost made it worse. I tried wearing a blindfold at home, but I kept breaking glassware and bruising my shins on the coffee table, and the light that leaked through the blindfold and into my closed eyelids was enough to show the writhing, transparent shapes. Even in complete darkness, I knew they were still there, waiting. It was when I was fixing dinner for myself one day that I finally… snapped. I had prepared a nice sauté of pea pods and tempeh, but as I was just about to ladle it out, I saw the clean white plate swarming with floaters. Suddenly nauseated, I dashed the plate to the floor. That's it! I shouted as I stood astride the shattered fragments. I yanked open the gadget drawer and pulled out an ice pick. Raising the point to my eye, I yelled, I can't take it anymore. Don't do it. I stared, stunned, at the semi-transparent letters that crawled in my vision, seemingly suspended in the air between myself and the ice pick's trembling point. Each character seemed woven of a glassy, scabrous worm, a nightmare font that squirmed in constant motion. I blinked. The letters remained. Why not? With a sick, disturbing motion, the floaters rewove themselves into a new message. All we desire is to see what you see. I lowered the ice pick. Who are you? My eyes felt as though they were full of ants, but I couldn't look away, couldn't blink. Not that it would make any difference if I did. looked at my trembling hands. They'd never feel clean again. We also enjoy your sexual acts. No, I cried and shut my eyes hard every time I'd ever... Oh God, I threw up the vomit splattering the floor unseen, the sounds of my own retching filling my ears, the acrid smell saturating the air, the cold vinyl of the floor dominating my sense of touch, and still I could not forget what lurked uninvited behind my eyes. Kelly's eyes widened as she looked me up and down from behind the security chain her bright orange hair poked out in every direction. Mason? I need to talk to someone, I slurred. Go home, it's 3 a.m., you're plastered. Please, I said. It's important, you're the only one who would believe me. She stared at me for a long, long time. My vision wavered and I didn't even know anymore if it was floaters or just the tequila. Please, I repeated the door closed. I had only a moment of complete despair before the chain rattled and the door opened again. She was wearing flannel pajamas with a print of sheep and crescent moons. Come on in, she said with an air of resignation. Wouldn't be the first time I've dealt with a drunk, freaked-out straight boy at three in the morning. I collapsed with relief onto a cow-print sofa. Thanks, I managed. Kelly vanished into the kitchen and returned with a big glass of water, how did you find me? I saw your last name on the desk at the op-top... Not that many Kelly Ryerson's in the phone book. Well, I'll have to do something about that. She shook her head. All right, so what's so all-fired important? I did my best to explain. The tequila didn't help my case, but frankly, I don't think it hurt it much either. I think Dr. Raj is the wrong kind of doctor for you. She said at last. This is real, I insisted. I'm sure it seems that way. She took the glass of water from me, folded my hands on my chest, and laid her warm palm gently atop them. Why don't you just rest here for a little bit and I'll see if I can find someone to help you. I looked at her pale face with its bright blue eyes and wild halo of fluorescent hair. She seemed so kind, so caring, Surely she had my best interest at heart. Maybe she was right. Maybe I did need professional help. And then I saw something else, prodding and probing at her eyes, her hair, the ring in her nose, at every interesting feature. No, I screamed and jumped up. She shrieked as she backed away, knocking over the end table and splashing water everywhere. I wanted to apologize, wanted to beg forgiveness, to plead for help. Instead, I ran, leaving the door open behind me. She didn't believe me. No one would ever believe me. I'd never be rid of them. A light rain began to fall as I stumbled the half mile to my own apartment. By the time I got there, I was soaked. I found myself in my kitchen, heating the ice pick over my gas stove. The tip glowed cherry red as I brought it to my eye. Any last words, I said, as I looked at the white porcelain of the sink.
1: We have always despised you.
0: To this day, I don't know if my shriek was of pain or triumph, but doing the second eye was the hardest part. Hi, my name's David D. Levine. I'm a science fiction writer. My story, Floaters, is one that had been kicking around my head for quite some time, and when I was asked to produce a special story for the HP Lovecraft month, I thought this one would be perfect. It doesn't have any specific Lovecraft themes or artifacts or gods in it, but I felt that it had a sort of a Lovecraftian vibe. The idea that there are things hiding in your own eyes that you can see only at certain times, and only on certain backgrounds, but they're always there, and they're always watching whatever it is you're watching, is uniquely creepy to me. I first started seeing those floaters when I was in my 30s, and I've always been kind of bugged by them. The original title of this story was, They Only Come Out By Day, and that's, I think, what bugs me the most about them. I hope you like the story. Well, there you go. Thanks, David. Folks, we hope you're enjoying our special Lovecraft month. We really think it's cool commissioning new speculative fiction from authors like David, giving them opportunities to push out new worlds and cool ideas. If you're with us on this, consider donating to us this month if you haven't before. Or if you have, how about chucking us a different president this time? We'd like to be able to do this kind of thing more often, but we just ain't got the means in greens, you know what I'm saying? got a few support options off our main page, travelcast.org if you didn't know. Donate once, $5 a month automatic subscription, and a mighty mighty $10 a month automatic subscription. Your donations go to awesome use, I'm sure you realize, and we very much do appreciate the support. Especially from folks like this week's kick-ass donor of the week, Jennifer Hiller. Jennifer's a web programmer living in Culver City with a cheese-eating surrender monkey, a.k.a. a Frenchman, and two hyperactive cats. Some evenings she's playing French horn in community bands or orchestras, and occasionally gets paid enough to pay for gas. Her motto is, breaking even in music is almost like getting ahead. Amen to that, Jen. Her favorite podcasts include Rachel Maddow, The Fump, BBC's In Our Time, and, of course, the Minnesota Northern Pike Game Fishing Podcast. And her favorite audiobooks right now are The Guild of the Cowry Catchers and The Failed City Monologues, both of which I also recommend myself. Thanks, Jennifer. You rock. Hey, speaking of favorite podcasts, if you're a writer and or fan of fantasy and speculative fiction, I think you'll be interested in this podcast.
2: A redneck midget with a baby and a shotgun. A Farmville addict who majored in psychology to make people worse. A disgruntled cosplayer with degrees in biochem, English and shredding arguments. A velvet-throated herald of astrological deviance whose grandmother offered to contact a rat from the beyond. A verbose MC living in Japan who is occasionally possessed by Gollum. And a single librarian with a cat named Darcy and a penchant for zombies and barbecue sandwiches. These are the unlikely writer heroines of Pendragon Variety, an audio literary magazine and roundtable discussion podcast for genre fiction and poetry writers. Plug in your earbuds every Thursday for sage advice. I will give my sage advice to anyone that asks, and my advice is just don't suck. (laughs) Ineffable eloquence. Segue! Character development, yes! And relevant examples. Okay, so you can be dream Dreamwrecker, and Raven can be Reality Checker, and you even rhyme now. <laughs> I was going to say, now we need a theme song.
0: Oh God, Scrumby, promise me if we ever write a graphic novel, those are going to be our superheroes. Have you
2: seen The Penis Trap? Because that one's scary. What? Alright, if we promise not to put it in the podcast, you'll tell us about it, right? <laughs> Visit PendragonVariety.com to learn more. And try not to suck.
0: PendragonVariety.com. it's good stuff. And you know what else is good stuff? Season four of the Drabblecast Super Animal Beast Deathmatch competition, bitches.
1: Some are born, even bred, for the battlefield. Their whole lives dedicated to one unholy purpose, bloody, gruesome combat. Though many compete, in the end, only one is left standing or flying or swimming, or teleporting. Who would win in a hypothetical fight to the death? A giraffe that breathes fire, or a flying grizzly bear with giant bat wings? A solar-powered polar bear, or a panther that spits acid? We argue, you decide. The Super Animal Deathmatch Competition 2010. The most pointless, awesome contest ever. For real. Brought to you by the weirdos at the Drabblecast. Go to www.drabblecast.org and click on Mega Beasts. Yes sir, the opening
0: of Beast Season is upon us. Kicking off with a video podcast that we're doing at DragonCon in a couple weeks. Interviewing and agitating B-list celebrities by asking them which ridiculously badass, completely made-up creature would win in a fight to the death. Then we pour ourselves various libations in copious amounts and launch right into the round one show. If you're not subscribed to the Super Animal Megabeast feed, and this sounds up your alley, you can hook up with the Megabeast link at the top of our page, travelcast.org. Be warned, though. It can sometimes get explicit and a bit sophomoric in there. And guess what? I saved the best for last. A substantial new beast-related trinket designed to commemorate Seasons 1, 2, and 3 has come to pass. Mega Beast TRADING CARDS. An excellent keepsake. 36 glossy, full-color illustrated cards with 33 known contenders and the debut of two ultra beasts. Detailed statistics, descriptions of powers, and origins for all. PG rated in a way that the podcast could never hope to be. These were, of course, designed by our own Drabblecast Wunder artist, Bo Kyer. And let me tell you, they look fan-freaking-tastic. Now, don't expect them to shimmer faintly under the pale gibbous moon or jiggle recklessly like an immense, slippery Shoggoth, but trust me, you won't be able to look away. You'll be blown away. You'll be the envy of every weirdo on your street. And they're only 20 bucks. That's a killer deal for anyone who ever wanted full-color trading cards of zombie unicorns, flying telepathic manatees, or teleporting elephants with chainsaw trunks growing up. But we're stuck with lame old baseball cards. Shoot up all you want, Mr. Bonds. Performance-enhancing drugs have got a long way to go before they can catch up with a telephant. Go to megabeasts.com to check them out and pre-order your set today. That's megabeasts.com. All right, time for our 100-character story winner this week, Flodo, with this cute little fella. Diminutive, barren mine shafts and waste heaps pocked to the surface. What the hell did we expect to find on a dwarf planet? Ah, oh, poor Pluto. Follow us on Twitter at TheDrabbleCast. Read the winners early each week and be briefly but sharply entertained. Try your own hand at writing a 100-character story. We've got a handy sizing tool located in our discussion forums to help you out. Also, another reminder, if you're going to DragonCon in Atlanta Labor Day weekend and you went in on the fan meetup, shoot us an email and let us know. DrabbleCast at Yahoo.com. We'd love to shake your tentacle and say hello. Alrighty, folks, that's our show. It's produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means share it all you like, but don't change, don't sell, and don't listen to its snarky comments about your paintings. They're fine. Speaking of art, special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Skeet Sciensky. Check out his bacon-flavored website at skeetland-art.com to see more of his great work. Well, see you next week, weirdos. We've got an original Lovecraft-esque story by Jay Lake with your ears' names on it. Hey, wait a second. How do you know the names of my ears? How do you know? Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that the second eye is the toughest part.
1: These eyes Watch you bring my world To an end This heart not accept